I love everything about this restaurant. It really is my happy place. And you know, everything from this very genuine group of people that I work with that absolutely love hospitality, like in a true sense. Being around a group of people like that is, is really important and quite impactful for me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. What is the perfect restaurant model? From the outside looking in, being the best in your field may help explain this, but with so many moving parts to a restaurant, the slim profit margins and the balancing act of juggling consumer expectation, what is a sweet spot for a quality offering? Sunny Lusted is the co-owner of Woodcut Restaurant in Sydney. Sunny, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. It's great to get you on the show. Um, you opened Woodcut Restaurant during pretty prickly time in our lives. What's it been like? Look, it's been, um, I guess, it's been an incredible time, actually. I have to say, you know, there was quite a lead up for us. So we had sort of a lot of time to prepare. Um, and I guess we'd been actually dreaming about it for a very long time. We'd been working on the concept for actually a decade or so. Um and it sort of had, you know, lots of, I guess, evolution um, from the time that we first wanted to, you know, open this restaurant through to to where it sort of, um, you know, turned into today. But look, it was a very interesting time because it was between two lockdowns. And I guess um, after the first lockdown, we assumed that that was done. And so sort of launched into the opening and it was a very exciting time for us, I think, um, having run a very intimate fine diner and then, you know, uh, opening quite a large venue. We, well, I think me in particular, I was really conscious about how our regular guests at the Bridge Room and, and our uh, Sydney following in particular, how they would respond to I guess, our next chapter. So for me, that was the, the thing, to be honest, that I was most conscious of and how how that would be because it was, uh, you know, I guess the the relationships with, that we had with all of those guests was so important to us. Um, so I think that was one of the, the most important elements. And so having them come along and, and love this and embrace this next chapter and connect with what we were doing, I think that that was the most sort of, pivotal moment I think for me in that opening knowing that we had nailed that for those guests uh, so everything else felt like um, I guess it just came together really beautifully once I knew that that was landed. You're right there's enough things to deal with when you own a restaurant let alone managing that perception from one venue to the next that are so different. Um, give us give us a sense of the scale of woodcut because as you say the bridge room the intimate fine diner which kind of changed Sydney and was part of that big change. Give us a sense of woodcut and what you're doing there. Well, Woodcut is is almost five times the size of the bridge room, um, and has lots of different layers to it. Yeah, so so from a, a layout perspective, yeah, literally, I think spatially, it's it's sort of quite substantially larger. But one of the the beauties of the site, and one of the important elements that um, we took into consideration when we were you know, designing it was that we've actually laid it out into a lot of intimate areas. So, in fact, when you dine at Woodcut, there are a number of smaller dining rooms which almost feel like an intimate space in themselves. So, 
you can still have that feeling and that beautiful connection with people and they don't feel like they're in some sort of giant venue. But in actual fact, as you, you know, look through the open kitchens and look across, you can see there's actually a lot going on. But your individual experience is quite intimate. So that that was sort of a really important design element for us. Um, we've got a, a terrace, uh, a beautiful large terrace, which, you know, goes out onto the harbour and, and a lovely outdoor bar. And inside we've got a series of intimate dining rooms that, that sit between a series of open kitchens. And we've also got um, a couple of beautiful private rooms as well. So there's lots of different elements which punctuate the space. And I think that is extremely important um, because in itself, yeah, it's about a thousand square metres. So it's quite large. Wow. That's quite extraordinary. Um, such a huge project. What sort of, what sort of um, people power does it take to run a restaurant that big? Yeah, well, that, that's sort of an, another interesting one. So um, we've got almost 150 um, people working for us. So, yeah, it's it's an enormous team and, again, dramatically different size to the bridge room. But I guess, um, you know, my, my background is in hotels. I was a hotelier for, I guess, the first 25 years of my career. And so m- most of my teams, and I was mostly running boutique hotels for a lot of my career, uh, so most of my teams were sort of somewhere between 100 to 300 people. So actually, in many respects, that is my sweet spot in terms of team size. I think it allows us to have uh, a lot of really talented, incredible managers who can flourish in themselves and also contribute to the whole kind of evolution of what we're we're doing, which I love. I think that's... Um, a really uh, huge part of my satisfaction and how I love to work. I don't really want to be the one, um, I guess, directing every single element. I like to work with a, a band of talented people and, you know, brainstorm and be inspired by each other and that's I, – I feed off that very, very much. So um, I love that dynamic and it's one of the the elements about Woodcut that gives me so much joy personally. Well, I want to explore um, Woodcut in a bit more detail and also the dynamic between you and Ross and how you managed to pull together these incredible venues. Um, but take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family growing up? Well, it was enormously important. I mean, I've always loved food um, as a child. I, I, I didn't ever think it was going to, uh, you know, come into my world professionally, that, that sort of was quite a surprise to be honest um I wanted to be you know um a professional pianist for most of my life and at some point I wanted to be a pilot um so you know my goals were dramatically different and um but you know my childhood definitely set the stage for my passion for food and um you know both my parents were very much into food my father had grown up in the countryside in England and, you know, had had grown up through the depression and where you've got to have your own, you know, garden, otherwise you really don't have food to eat. So he was actually quite an accomplished uh, gardener and, you know, knew how to pickle and preserve. And, um, in fact, even he told me, I didn't even know this um, until recently, but when he was a really young child, he didn't even have a fridge. So he was extremely um, skilled in, in preserving food. So he sort of had a real passion for, you know, like we would – 
um, drive down to Robertson and buy a box of potatoes and do something with that or we drive up to the Blue Mountains and, you know, go to Bilpin and get some apples. He was sort of very much of that, um, you know, ilk of go and buy a lot of something great and then do something with it. So we would always sort of different sort of, you know, something fresh and then we would, you know, pickle or preserve or, you know, do something with that. So if we had a crop, we would do the same thing, have baby new potatoes, but then, you know, obviously we would do things sort of with the, with, you know, the older, larger ones as they, as we stored them. So, yeah, I, I sort of had that in my house from a very um, young age and my mother had a real passion actually for, you know, nutrition, in fact, um, and I think that's probably not exciting for a lot of people, but actually it they paid so much attention to the balance of everything and, uh, we you know, we had a lot of friends from different parts of the world. My father's a writer and he'd often have, like, translators coming over and live here and, you know, so we would often have recipes, you know, like I grew up with Korean recipes in my house and, you know, um, Greek recipes and things like that. You know, um, my mum was sort of always making friends with all of our grocers around town. So, you know, our green grocer used to share his secret mother's um, Lebanese recipes. So, you know, we had all these incredible um, influences in food in our house through all these people in our lives. Um, and we travelled a lot because Dad was from the UK and would, would head back every year to, um, you know, make sure that his family were sort of set up and looked after and would go and, you know, repair things for the house or, you know, top up the garden or do things like that. And then, then we would sort of take side trips and he, um, he often got posted, um, you know, in an academic role, you know, uh, somewhere else in the world. So, you know, we, we travelled a lot and I think that was also sort of I think one of the greatest gifts of my life because I had this perception that there's this whole incredible world out there and I think growing up in a really multicultural city um, was extremely exciting for me. Uh, my mum was um, was born in Lismore and, and had never eaten um, sort of any other cuisine until she moved to Sydney. So I think for her it was also this incredible um, eye-opener and such a sort of um, an exciting world out there. So we, the three of us, you know, when I was a kid, we used to sort of dine out several times a week, um, mostly in Chinatown and um, little hole-in-the-wall places. And it was just, it was a really lovely experience to grow up with because it gave me this sense of I, being part of the world, you know, being part of something bigger. And, and that was deeply influential for me, I think. So, yeah. Was that upbringing the lure for you to embark on a career in sort of boutique hotels? Look, full disclosure, I mean, I think my entry into hospitality was was an, a complete accident. Um, my parents, like, honestly, uh, it was. And my parents, and maybe, maybe it, it's been like this for a lot of people, but it wasn't, it, it, food was a hobby and a love for me. It was certainly not something that was ever going to be a professional, um, you know, situation for me at all. But, um, you know, I, I took a summer job uh, just between some university holidays and um, it was the very first job I'd ever had. My parents were sort of, again, you know, all my friends got to have jobs when they were growing up and I thought that was very exciting. And um, But they were just like, look, no, we really want you to, you know, either – 
study and do your work or just go out and have fun and live life and because you know this is this is the time when you can just sort of you know have that that level of freedom and focus and there'll be a time where you know you've got a lot of responsibilities so just you know do that um which at the time I was a bit frustrated with because you know they were all getting what I saw as quite important life skills so I was petrified I was never going to be employable um and I applied for three three summer jobs um and got all three one was at a florist one was at a bank uh and the other was in a hotel and um you know uh, so I took the hotel job because they paid penalty rates because you got to work in the evenings. And so I thought I'll earn a bit more money. Um, so <laughs> so my, my motivations were purely financial at that moment. And um, it was an instant love affair from day one. I loved it so much that my intent on having a summer job turned into a full-time forever job. Um, so I literally started in hotels that day and didn't stop until 25 years later when, when I, you know, Ross and I opened our, our first restaurant together. So it really was a complete love affair from the very beginning and um, turned into, well, a lifelong passion. I'm still passionate about the hotel business, about hospitality, uh, restaurants, you know, there's two different kind of um, forks in the road, I guess, in, in that. And um yeah, so what a happy accident that was. <laughs> well, very fortunate one for everyone who, who um, loves dining out and, and travelling. Um, tell us about the really sort of important uh, moments, you know, before the world in restaurants, you know, when you were sort of travelling the world and working in boutique hotels, what were some of the key venues and experiences that you had that helped sort of shape your career? Um, look, I think, well, I had two really enormously different chapters in my hotel life, um, two distinctly different hotel groups that I worked with. The first was um, Hyatt International and um, I worked at Park Hyatt Sydney uh, for, for years and, and that's actually where Ross and I met. Um, and that was an incredible experience. And I think I was, you know, surrounded by, um, I, you know, I worked there for a long time and, and I guess learnt my craft. I learnt sort of how to uh, really um, understand deep hospitality and, and how um, personalised it could be, you know, and it really – I, I love that hotel so much because I was able to really focus on all the guest experiences and that really sort of spoke to me um, quite deeply. You know, it was under only about 150 rooms, so quite boutique in, in the Hyatt world. And, um, you know, I worked with a really great person that just was willing to support me spreading my wings. You know, they really let me go off and do these projects, even when it was going to be convenient, inconvenient to them and, and to the operation, they were willing to make their life difficult to give me opportunities. And I, I can't tell you how pivotal that was in my life because I think that's also really formed the basis for how I like to operate. And whenever there is an opportunity for someone, you know, I'll never stand in their way because it's inconvenient because, you know, things are always inconvenient to not have someone around. But that sort of pay it forward mentality um, has has really stuck with me because you've just got to get behind people and let them have their wings and their opportunities when when they come along. And, and one of the things I've noticed is, you know, sometimes 
having or owning a small business, sometimes you don't always have those instant opportunities for people to spread their wings. And, you know, if there's been opportunities elsewhere um, and people have needed to do that, we've said, okay, who do you, who do you want us to call? You know, do you want to be in Melbourne? Do you want to be in Sydney? Do you want to go to Paris? Do you want to go to the US? What do you want? Let's make a phone call and let's get you that opportunity so that you can spread your wings. And and often those people then come back, um, you know, into another role and a more senior role later on. So I think, you know, for me, when I was was in that role uh, at Hyatt, I got a wonderful opportunity to travel internationally, um, doing projects in you know Mexico and South America, and and um, I ended up you know transferring over to a role based out of the corporate office in Chicago, where I was literally living on a plane, and every six weeks I was in a different country all around the world. Um, and Ross moved over to Singapore, so he was based in Singapore. And every six weeks um, I would fly into Singapore so we could see each other for a couple of weeks and then I'd fly back out again. And um, so I was literally around the globe. I mean, you almost name a destination and I was there. And I think what was so incredible was not only seeing all these um, operations but but getting to know culturally people in a different way because it's all you know when you're on your summer holiday and you hop on a plane and you go somewhere and you sit in a great cafe and it's wonderful okay that that's one level of experience but when you're working alongside people and you know day in day out and having to understand cultural nuance in a completely different way um, and what they go through and how they approach life it gives you a, a completely different insight and so I guess you know, one of the, the great passions for me about that is understanding all the differences that we all have, but actually how um, how much commonality we have. You know, sometimes I would be sitting in Thailand and it would be reminding me of Mexico or, you know, I'd have these feelings of like, oh, I recognise this. You know, there's this, this common thread and I think sometimes the world is about differences and, and there's a beauty in that too, but there's something um, that unites us at such a deep level. And I think for me, that was one of the most beautiful things as an adult, because I, you know, I traveled a lot as a child with my parents and that was a wonderful experience. But I think this having to navigate a professional life and see things in a different way uh, was amazing. I mean, you know, the US... For example, you know, I was based in Chicago um, for quite a while. I went to high school um, in California in Santa Barbara when my dad was visiting professor there. And then later on, um, Ross and I um, opened an Amman Resort, which was another completely uh, different chapter again. Um, and we opened a resort on the border of Arizona and Utah, um, you know, in two red states. And, you know, literally, um, you know, two months into Obama's first term. So it was an incredible um, eye-opener to just even in one country that we think we have so many similarities with. Well, you know, look at that time when I was younger. Um, I guess all we'd sort of seen was films and, you know, movies. We've, we've, I think we've got a lot more knowledge about, you know, um, politically how different countries are these days because of all the, you know, um, media we, we have access to. But, you know, it was an extraordinary experience, I guess, feeling like, you're living in several foreign countries within another Western country that we perceive we have so much in common with. So, you know, all the way through to living through, you know, Asia and, you know, um, South America and then, you know, later in Europe. So, yeah, it, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, later on, um, 
you know, well, Ross and I have been living apart for quite a while. So even though, you know, we were travelling across the globe to see each other, you know, it's really nice to live in the same city for a while. <laughs> um, and, you know, look, he was absolutely incredible. I mean, I don't know. I mean, of course they're out there, but I don't know how many people are willing to, you know, back your partner and just say, you know, this is such an incredible opportunity. Like, you know, I've got you. Go do this. Go do your thing. I'm here, you know. And, I mean, I think to have that um, trust and and support and, um, you know, knowledge of a person um, is, is pretty incredible, particularly at the beginning of a relationship where you probably want to be around a lot to consolidate that somehow from the word go we just had that incredible trust and um, knowingness with one another. And so, you know, I was – well, initially living in another city and then, you know, eventually in another country. Um, but, you know, after a few years we were like, okay, look, it'd be really nice <laughs> if we saw each other most days. Um, and so we uh, actually joined a, a beautiful boutique resort company called Aman Resorts um, and their corporate office was based in Chicago. And I'm um, sorry, not Chicago, Singapore, sorry. Um, and they were heavily... Uh, based in Asia at that time. Uh, there were definitely um, resorts around the globe. I think there were about 10 of them at the time. And by the time we left, we had sort of opened um, and been part of, you know, taking it up to a, a resort size of about 25 resorts, I think, internationally at that moment. Uh, I think it might be up to 30 by now. Um, but that was an incredible journey. And we, we started off in East Bali in, uh, at Amankila, which was absolutely um an incredible time and um you know two months in I think we had the Bali bomb happen and so we again we're living in a, a you know a community where suddenly you know I guess the community was facing the the biggest tragedy that anyone um there had ever experienced and suddenly we're there um having to navigate through that and, and, and band together. And what an inspirational group of people uh, they were. I have to say I learnt so much about being a human being um, around that group of people. They were so inspiring about how they banded together and supported each other and took people in and um, really led by human example. And, yeah, I can't tell you on every level, yeah, how much I learnt as a human being just, just living in that country. Um, so, yeah, that that was one of the greatest gifts of my life, I think, getting to, to live there. Um, we went back recently, actually, uh, for, the, for the first time with our daughter um, last year, and it was actually the 20th anniversary of us starting uh, there as, as general managers and... Um, yeah, taking our daughter there was was such an incredible moment, and virtually the entire team are still there twenty years on. Um, and so, if they weren't there, they came in and visited us. Um, it was just absolutely extraordinary, just being around you know everybody again. And uh, yeah, I can't tell you how much love was in the room. It was so beautiful. But um, yeah, having that opportunity to take her back and give her an insight as to these these really pivotal parts of our life and and all these people in 
around the world that have contributed to well, our point of view, um, how we feel and think, how we are as human beings, how we operate. Um, like I can't point to one thing and say, oh, this one thing was the pivotal moment. Like it has just been layer upon layer upon layer of working with extraordinary people and, um, you know, in different countries with different points of view that have gently reframed how I perceive every aspect of life, I think, honestly, um, and have really sort of um, informed my value system, I think, even more deeply. Yeah, it's been um, been a beautiful journey with that. But, um, we, yeah, we worked for them for a very long time and um, during the, I guess, a key expansion moment uh, because we did have this sort of, uh, well, I, I in particular had a, a key sort of um, corporate hotel background, having worked in Hyatt where I was dealing with, you know, small hotels and thousand-room hotels and everything in between, um, but had managed an Amman resort, so had the sensibility of that intimate boutique resort um, sort of experience. Adrian Zacker, the, the chairman, um, who I believe has just turned 90 uh, this, this year, about a month ago, um, he asked us to, to go back over to Singapore to really spearhead how this development um, program and this expansion was going to happen because they wanted to work out how to, I guess, operate in a very professional way but not lose that sense of um, intimacy and, and connection and that's that very individual experience. You know, they didn't want to become corporatized. so how could they... Uh, do both so it sort of turned into a much more professional operation so that was a yeah really ex interesting experience working in the corporate office alongside Adrian Zacker and, and um, the executive directors I mean there was incredible knowledge in the room and um, yeah I ended up you know going in and um, heading up the sales division and you know opening um, offices around the world for that, which was um, yeah, quite out of my wheelhouse at that time, I have to say. Um, and I, again, I felt like every single experience that I had with Amman Resorts was this extraordinary challenge. And, you know, we were given these gifts of just, I don't know, going off and doing it. And like It was like there was this enormous trust of, well, we believe in you, so just go and do it. There was no, you know, manual or rule book. I mean, you know, at one point we were sent over to um, to live in Suftar, which is about 20 minutes south of Dubrovnik in Croatia, to open a resort there. And literally, you know, we just moved there with a couple of bags and, you know, two cats and a dog and um, just turned up and and off we went you know it wasn't like we had this big crew they're ready to go um and we were starting a development from scratch in the middle of nowhere I think I'm now a tax law specialist in Croatia um through my experience there and you know it's just like <laughs> these crazy wonderful things that we were dealing with that you're just thinking how are we here I mean a, you know a year later um no, or a year after we we returned back to Australia for a little bit and um and Adrian Zaka you know, got on the phone and said, look, <laughs> we need you to move back to Montenegro, like now, because we've got this lease um, on this incredible resort called uh, Sveti Sefan, which is a 15th century um, village in uh, Montenegro that was converted by Tito uh, into a hotel 
in the 1950s and he um it, it was it was a living breathing island um and connected by a, a you know a causeway that was you know uh, underwater at high tide and then you could walk across at low tide and so he actually built a new village on the mainland and moved all the residents off and, and converted it into a little hotel so this was basically you know um a medieval village like a real village that was was converted into somewhere that you could go and live and so Amman Resorts were taking this over and developing this and there was a, about two kilometres of coastline including um, a private uh, beach in Europe can you believe um, called Queen's Beach and, and another um, what what had been the summer residence of Queen Maria Karadjordjevic who was um, the Queen of Yugoslavia. She used to go there in the 1920s for her summer holidays and so that was the first sort of phase of, of, of getting that open and he was like look you know we're a month away basically if we don't if we don't get this open we're going to lose our lease and then it's all over. So <laughs> can you get on a plane? <laughs> so we literally just closed the door to our house, um, went to get on a plane uh, and, and get over there. We had to take our dog back and we're thinking, well, how are we going to do this? And, you know, I was like, look, I, I can't work out how to fly him into Montenegro, but we, we used to live in Croatia. So I called up the, the airport in Croatia, uh, in not in Croatia, in, well, yes, in Croatia, but in Dubrovnik and said, okay, look, um, you know, you know, I'm Sunny. I don't know if you remember me, but I've got this beagle and, you know, we moved there and then we had to move out and, and they're like, oh, Sonchitsa, yes, yes, beagle, we know the beagle. Don't worry, just just get on a plane and come in. Don't worry about the paperwork. We know who you are. And I was like, wow, this is the power of relationships. Like it took me a 100 pieces of paperwork to get him out of the country. We had to do blood spinning in Slovenia. We had to have documents translated. We had to have... All these people come and assess things. But because we'd been there and we had this relationship, they're like, oh, we know who you are. Just just fly in. So literally we get on a plane 48 hours later, you know, lock up our house, sell our boat, like we had a little tender boat because we were living offshore at Pitwater, you know, turn up um, with the dog they let us in and then we just drive across the border because, you know, between Croatia and Montenegro, they don't have any sort of restrictions with moving animals around. And I'm like, how have we done this in a 48-hour period and just turn up and, you know, within two weeks we get the first phase of the resort open and, you know, we're sitting there at one point in a meeting going, how are we a bunch of, you know, Australians sitting here opening one of the most historic buildings in Europe like, this is one of the most landmark openings. How is this even happening? And I think part of this was, you know, Adrian Zucker used to just build relationship with people and say, okay, look, I trust you. I trust that we're aligned. I trust we have this aligned vision and I see something that I connect in you. So go forth and do it. <laughs> and so we'd just be given these incredible, you know, um, projects to do that it seemed ludicrous like you just think how do we have the qualifications to do this like there never seemed to be a cv that could have really uh demonstrated that you had the right to even give something like that a go but somehow you had we had these people behind us that were like just we trust you go do it you know what to do and if not you'll work it out <laughs> so um yeah 
And, you know, to this day, I mean, I still keep in weekly contact with my Montenegrin friends. Um, you know, we're going to make a, a trip over to Europe later in this year and they're all going to fly in and visit us. And, you know, I just, I feel like life has sort of given this gift of all these crazy, wonderful, unexpected um, adventures and we've just gone, yes, let's do it. I mean, we moved countries quite a few times where we'd never even stepped foot in that country and we just packed our bags with the trust that, oh, well, this will be an adventure, let's just do this. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's been an exciting one. <laughs> what was it like coming back to Australia and, you know, tell us about that decision and, and what it was like returning to Sydney to create the Bridge Room? Well, I think by the time um, we had had a little sojourn back, I'm going to say we had a year back, about two years prior to moving back permanently, we did have a year back home and it was really lovely and I think the driving force for that at the time was, you know, really missing family I think at that time. So we came back but honestly I'm going to say neither of us were quite ready and that I think when, you know, Adrian called and said, look, can you just get on a plane and do this? We were quite excited. I think we were like, oh, yes, the bud got pumping again. And when we got on a plane and we did that and that was, you know, what we needed, I think, at that time. And then we, we moved over to the US. And after that to, to open Amangiri. And after, I think after sort of um, spending time there, you know, look, we were in a lot of our postings were very remote and this was no different. We were living on the border of Arizona and Utah. Um, our nearest town was, you know, 10,000 people, um, you know, with, with 10 churches and 10 drive-through, you know, takeaway joints um, and Walmart for, for groceries. So, you know, it was pretty um, middle of nowhere with no food culture and, you know, it was geographically incredible um, with, you know, Bryce and Zion and, you know, Glen Canyon Dam and you know, Colorado River. It was incredible. But I think we were living there and because we were in the middle of nowhere um, trying to open this resort, we, we came into a situation where there wasn't a lot of skill level, particularly in the kitchen. And so actually Ross jumped back into the kitchen at that time because he'd ended up morphing into a development role and was developing and designing and, um, you know, different resorts around the world for Adrian Zucker and, you know, coming up with a lot of conceptuals and, you know, would fly in and, and work out um, what produce was there and what you would want to eat when you were there both locally but, you know, what, what else would you want to experience when you were there? And I think when we when we moved to this part of the US, it became immediately obvious that Ross was going to have to get back in the kitchen because he needed he he really needed to start from scratch. I mean, it was a situation where you know he'd say go and get a carton of eggs, and they would be looking for um, what we would perceive as a as a milk carton with pre cracked eggs in a you know liquefied that was where things were at at that time. So he was like, oh, wow, I come in, I have to teach you what an egg looks like and how to crack it into a fry pan. Like it was it was literally starting from the beginning. So he jumped back into the kitchen and I think for him it was just suddenly 
again, this love affair was relaunched for him and he was like, oh, this is, you know, he was so happy. He was like, this is where I want to be and what I want to be doing. And, you know, it had always been his dream to open his own restaurant, but this really reignited that for him. Um, and so pretty much once we'd gotten the resort open and landed and and things were sort of running swimmingly, we were like, okay, we, we really need to go back and do this. And Ross had been talked about talking about this for a long time. So I just said, look, okay, let's let's go back to Australia. Let's do this. I'm a hotelier, but I'll I'll get you I'll get you open. Like we'll go back, we'll we'll set something up, I'll get you open and then I'll go back to being in hotel world, you know. That was sort of the, the plan. So we moved back to Australia and I think um, one of the things during that time is we really realised we were missing so deeply the multiculturalism of Australia. I think from, you know, the, the food scene in Australia and the produce and the, I mean, it's so exciting and there's so many different layers and I think we were really, really missing that. So I think the first time we came back, it was purely about feeling homesick and the family. But the second time when we moved back and, and um, subsequently it's been a permanent move, was there was there were a lot of other things driving it. I think we realised um, where we were living, we had a very different value system. Our value system for the first time probably ever was not aligned with the community's value system. It was a really different part of the States for us. Um, and we couldn't, that was, it was really difficult to align ourselves with the point of view of what was going on community-wise. And I think secondly, suddenly being in an environment where like there was no market, there was no food. I mean, like literally you'd go to Walmart and buy green potatoes. I mean, I think once as an experiment, Ross marked a piece of produce and it was still there months later. Um, it just, it was soul destroying from, from that perspective. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really, really sort of big eye opener for us. And so we really realised, I guess, how much we appreciate about Australia and how, you know, look, every country has its faults. Of course it does. But in general, our experience in Australia had sort of been one of, you know, that was very inclusive and multicultural and accepting and you could be who you were. And, you know, again, I know there's a laundry list of examples that would, you know, show people having experience other than that. I, I get that and I understand that and there's lots of room to grow. But in general, I felt that I guess we're a nation that is willing to support each other and back each other and, um you know, there's so much camaraderie, even like in our industry, as an example, like everybody's got each other's backs. Everybody celebrates the wins. And if someone falls over, people go, oh, what the hell? And they throw their arms around you. I mean, I think it's a really incredible community. If we need anything, we just pick up the phone, you know, and people pick up the phone to us all the time. And there's something that's so wonderful about that. And you think, I think when you don't see or experience something else, you take that for granted. You don't realise that isn't just how things are. But actually, I can't tell you how fortunate we are. And look, we had so many incredible experiences around the globe um, and so much kindness and so much love and so much collaboration, but also some stuff that you see that you go, wow, this is not aligned 
with my value system and this is not how I want to spend my time. So I think there were lots of different things that pivoted to that. But so what was beautiful about all of that was that when we got back to Australia, um, we had this deep sense of appreciation of what was in our front yard all of a sudden. So we weren't taking anything for granted. Everything seemed like a gift to us. Everything was incredible. And, you know, we we met Leon Fink um, and, you know, developed this wonderful relationship with him. And he was like, you know what, like, you know, I love you kids and I want to I wanna do something with you. I want to make this work. I want to see, you know, um, you do something amazing. And so we sort of forged this incredible partnership with him. And, you know, he just had our back all the time. He's like just this incredible person who was almost like we sort of became an extended part of his family or something and just wanting to share, um, you know, um, we all we all bring our knowledge to the equation. But, yeah, it was sort of really interesting um, having that, I guess, experience with him moving back to Australia. But so, you know, Ross had been um, – madly enough with the bridge room site for years and years and years and years he'd had his eye on that site for you know forever and he was talking I mean the whole time we were living overseas he, he would talk about it and um so eventually I was like look <laughs> we've been together a long time I really need you to do this or shut up about it like really like you know um you know Ross is an incredible dreamer and an incredible creative and I'm like, okay, let's just do this. <laughs> let's, let's do it or don't do it, but, you know. So um, we were, uh, like, our vision for Woodcut, um, the, the version of that that it was in at the time, that was our original um, plan to open with Leon. And we were looking for a site and a few sites fell over. And then um, somehow... Ross worked out how to get the bridge room site and we approached the tenants at the time and like, look, you know, we're really in love with this and, you know, it's a real kind of passion project for us and, and they actually agreed to sell it to us. So instead of opening what would have been the version of Woodcut at that time, um, it ended up getting funnelled into what was the bridge room. And, yeah, it was – I guess we just really wanted to – no, I mean, I guess it was a, you know, deeply personal project. Um, I think at the time it felt to us that there were a lot of um, fine dining. So, you know, fine dining at that time had morphed into if you were eating in a high-end way, you, it was a tasting menu or nothing. So it felt like Sydney was dominated by really incredible high-end sort of, you know, three-hatted tasting menu um, restaurants and then a lot of very casual restaurants that were incredible and it didn't feel at that time that there was any I'm going to say anything but probably if we go back and research that's not the case but let's say a lot in between um, that wasn't really a huge genre at that moment so we wanted to open something that felt like coming home you know that you you walked in and you felt like you were dining at your best friend's house that you just felt so relaxed that you would be thrilled to sit in the chair for five hours and hang out, you know, that it wasn't like a Churnham and Burnham, like go in and have your meal and then run out, but rather, you know, that you could pop in and 
you know, have have something simple um, and then head out or you could spend a sort of a whole evening there. And I guess for us, we, you know, Ross wanted to do his food and, and the food that he loves and is passionate about, but we wanted the environment to feel really relaxed. So we didn't want anyone to feel that they had to be kind of standing on ceremony to come, you know, that you could be down the road shopping or going to a meeting and then go, oh, why don't we just pop into the bridge room, you know, that it could be, a, you know, a spontaneous, relaxed experience. And so I think, yeah, that was an interesting one because somehow over time I think because it became quite beloved um, and I think because, you know, Ross has an extraordinary talent in the kitchen, somehow things evolved, not necessarily by our design, but perhaps because of circumstance uh, morphed into then a much more fine dining version of what it is, but that was not our intent. Um, our intent was deliberately to not do that. Um, if we'd wanted to, you know, open a super fine dining place, we could have done that, uh, but it just wasn't the goal. We really wanted we wanted to have something that was different. We didn't want people to have to turn up and do a tasting menu. Uh, and we fought against that for ages to the point where when we, and this sounds ridiculous, but when we accidentally got three hats, such a ridiculous statement, I realised, we were like, wow, well, what do we do with this? Um, we're honoured and we're grateful and we're, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a huge compliment except for the fact that we haven't created a three-hat restaurant. So what do we do with this now? So, you know... We were given three hats because it was beloved, but it wasn't because we were following the format, because we weren't. We didn't have a tasting menu. We didn't have a 300-page wine list. We didn't, you know, we didn't have all the things that at that moment in time said that that's what it was supposed to be. And, you know, look, things have, you know, evolved over time, obviously. But at that moment in time, there was a really sort of, it felt like a strict checklist of what it should look like. So, yeah, suddenly we had guests coming and they're like, what do you mean it's a la carte? We're like, well, yeah, you know, um, and they're like, well, where's my tasting menu? Because I'm going down the three-hat list and we're here now. Um, and so what do we do with this? So it was a very interesting time because I guess up until that time we were like, well, let's build what we love and people will come that relate to that. You know, it, we were really making something that we wanted to dine in. And it was the first time, I mean, and of course we listened to people, you know, we were, you know, talking to people all the time. And as you know, Ross is very personable and loves to speak to guests and is very present and, you know, gets so much joy out of, you know, um, bantering with guests and, um, you know, suddenly someone would be, I don't know, entertaining someone from Singapore. And he's like, oh, we used to live in Singapore. I'm going to cook you a seven course, you know, tasting menu from my highlights from Singapore. And they would be like, oh, wow, this is incredible. You know, he would do all this stuff on the fly, which was really fun. And I think it was this sort of, you know, uh, very organic, but suddenly, yeah, people were turning up with expectations of, okay, I need my tasting menu. Um, so we had to work out how to respond to that because this, again, accidental situation, which we hadn't uh, cultivated, if we were going to do that, we would have picked a different venue. Um, with, you know, a few different trappings. I mean, you know, at one point we were running a full um, tasting menu and full a la carte out of a 20-square-metre kitchen. Can you imagine? Um, I mean, I, I just don't – I still don't even know how Ross did it. I mean, he's an absolute magician. But 
we were trying to work out how to talk to the people who were looking in the guide and going down the list and coming and going, well, this is what we demand of you. But we we're like, look, we refuse to alienate the people who are our regular guests. You know, 50% of the room every day was regulars. We really had this incredible following and even people flying in from other cities, you know, like they really backed us and supported us. We're like, well, we're not turning our backs on them just because suddenly this has happened. So what do we do with this? So we, we forced this situation upon ourselves, which was operationally extraordinarily challenging because um, we just weren't willing to give up our, you know, our regular guests. That just wasn't an option for us because, you know, it's so much more than um, just a clientele for us. And anyway, so, yeah, that was a very, very interesting one, I have to say. <laughs> Well, these days, as we mentioned at the top of the show, um, you have Woodcut Restaurant and, you know, Bridge Room had such a profound impact on Sydney. It was the restaurant that Sydney didn't know it needed until it arrived. Um, tell us about Woodcut, though, and, and, you know, what do you love about what you've created there with Ross Lusted? I, I love everything about this restaurant. It really is my happy place. And, you know, everything from this very genuine group of people that I work with that absolutely love hospitality, like in a true sense. It's not, I mean, of course it is literally a job for them, but it, it really is a passion uh, for them. And there's this real sense of, um, you know, integrity and authenticity and, you know, this group of people that really love each other, but love what they do and really believe in what they do. And I think for me, being around a group of people like that is is really important and quite impactful for me. Woodcut itself, um, you know, is is based on um, a series of, of beautiful open kitchens, and each one of those kitchens has a series of cooking methods. And for us, part of I guess the the pivotal aspect of this dining experience is to actually be able to experience all the different cooking methods so our steam kitchen is centered around these three steam kettles which we brought over from the states um another sort of you know little side story for us but you know when when ross and i were living in the states and had to um get our us visa they actually allowed us to um pop up to canada rather than flying back to australia which was very nice of them and um when it actually you know came through we we went and had um an incredible lunch at this um little local place in vancouver called rodney's oyster house and they had these these steam kettles we'd never seen them before and we were absolutely mesmerized and um you know the the whole theatre of that and watching that and the intensity of that was so exciting to us. Um, it never sort of left um, Ross's thoughts. He was he was talking about these um, for years afterwards. So we're actually the first country in the world to import these um, to the point where we had to even do some special conversion for them because they actually operate off uh, town steam and we don't have town steam in Australia. Uh, so we had to. Uh, do this this conversion <laughs> here um which they were very dubious about they're like how are you going to do that but we're like no no we'll work it out um so the the steam kitchen is centered around you know um this and the, the whole theater of that so sitting at the counter um all of the kitchens are actually um sunk sunken down so that when you sit at the counter you actually sit um at chair height rather than perched up on a stool and so you can watch sort of the whole action of the the chefs and that particular kitchen, of course, uh, had to have a rabada grill in there because as you, you know, uh, Ross had a 
deep passion for Robata grills. I think after we opened the bridge room, every second restaurant in Australia suddenly had a Robata grill. Um, So Ross could not give up his his Robata grill Um, and, and, you know, wood oven, which – we, we couldn't fit into the bridge room, so he had to give that up. But So finally he got his wood oven at, um, at Woodcut. So that, that restaurant's all about that. And the fire kitchen uh, is all about the, the wood grills, so that's, um, that's pretty exciting there. And then we have another kitchen, which is um, the, the seafood counter, and that's all about, you know, cold seafood and seafood platters and things like that, um, and an open pastry kitchen. And I think for us, you know, eating is about – and dining out, I think, for us very much is about entertainment and having fun and, you know, that whole sort of feeling good, you know, walking in and feeling like you know the person that's looking after you, like they're really connecting with you and they care that you're there. Um, you're not. It's not sort of a transactional type of experience, you know, that's super important to us. Um, all the way through to, um, you know, watching all the chefs do what they do, um, it, it, it's quite sort of... I can just sit there for hours and be mesmerised watching, watching them glide through the kitchens, um, and they're all on um, headphones, so there's no shouting across kitchens because um, you, you can imagine coordinating. You know, we've got 50 chefs, so we we probably have about 20 20 odd chefs on at any given time. Um, so I think there's about 53 chefs on the team. And uh, so it's a huge operation and they've got to coordinate uh, between kitchens. So wherever you sit, so if you're sitting in the dining room or on the terrace or in a private room or if you choose to sit at one of the counters, um, you can still order from the whole um, – the whole the, the menu is comprised of things from all of those different cooking methods and all of the different kitchens. Um, so where you sit is just really sort of, um, you know uh, – prescribing what view you're, you're looking at. But, you know, you can certainly experience everything from the whole uh, restaurant wherever you dine. But I think all of those different elements coming in just make for such a, an exciting experience. And, you know, our restaurant is, is well, this sounds like lip service because I think it is, is you know, something that, that so many people say, but it really is all about the produce. Like it really is about the simplicity of the produce really singing. Um, I think the bridge room was much more heavily about technique. Of course, the, you know, the produce has always been a, a driver uh, for us at every single point. And I think, you know, as we touched on earlier on, you know, my backyard garden was always let's go and, you know, um, pick those peas and, and have them, you know, um, very simply with a bit of mint and some butter on top or, you know, like just tasting the beauty of that produce and letting that shine through. So, you know, Ross is really focused um, in this venue on, on really letting the most incredible produce shine and, you know, and experiencing that. So when he gets the produce, he says, well, you know, what cooking method is going to make this produce at this moment sing you know what what is it that that is going to make it shine and and that's been the driving force um of that you know the the creative process at the bridge room was so deeply different for him and this has been you know an, I guess a really beautiful evolution for him where he can have so much fun and have this freedom to let different elements shine you know we've we've lived all over the world and i think every single place that we lived had its own um food culture but also you know one of the things i touched on earlier on today was about 
this shared experience and, you know, every single country has this experience with fire and every single country has this experience with, you know, different elements of produce. And what we found, I guess, was that as we were um, travelling these different food moments for us is is about, I guess, which has created this bank of memories for us about when we think about these countries, those different elements. So that was a really important starting point uh, for Ross in this moment was how to create those food memories from what it is that we're doing. And, you know, sometimes we have, you know, people sitting there and they're suddenly taken back to, you know, mama's cooking something or other, you know, and they, they get a bit misty and they tell us about it. And, you know, I think it, it's, you know, that's everything for us, you know, because sometimes, um, I don't know, I think it lets people choose their own adventure and their own experience in a way. Um, and, yeah, I really love that. But I think, you know, Woodcut is a place where, people can experience it in really, really different ways. You know, you can come by yourself and sit at the counter or come for your first date and not be nervous that you're not going to have anything to say, you know, um, all the way through to catching up with friends to, you know, having, you know, the chef's table and having a big kind of event there through to sitting on the terrace and just watching the boats go past, past all night. And, you know, I, for me personally, I guess my favourite um, spot is always at the counter. I, I just love watching the action in the kitchen. I just, it never gets old for me. So any chance I get, I, I um, engineer to sit myself on the counter. <laughs> That's always my favourite spot. And, um, yeah, just, uh, yeah, it's my happy place. Well, Sunny, it's incredible what you continue to create for the culinary landscape. And I feel like we could talk for hours, so we might have to catch up again later in the year. Um, please keep in touch and um, we'll catch up again soon. Well, so lovely to catch up. Thanks, Anthony. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>